Heavenly Father, you created heaven and earth and all things. In your Son, our Savior Jesus, all things hold together. Yet we wonder, O Lord, how long the wicked will be allowed to work injustice in the world. They attack and kill the innocent with rockets and machine guns, including widows and those who are helpless. The wicked boast that you do not see, that you do not perceive, but we know, O Lord, you who created the eye, you see. You who created the ear, you hear. We pray this morning that you will see the oppression of the weak and hear the groaning of the needy. As war has broken out in the Middle East, remember your church that is present there in the midst of the conflict. She is your bride. She's the bride of your son. And as woman is the glory of man, she is the glory of your son. So arise, Lord, and defend her. Strike her enemies on the jaw and shatter their teeth. Lest the wicked boast that they have prevailed against her and against you. On our own continent, we see that the wicked celebrate all manner of vile things. They speak falsely against your people, claiming that we don't love our neighbors and even that we hate our own children because we won't celebrate perversions. But you, Lord, you know that through the death, resurrection, and ascension of your Son, our Savior Jesus, that we are innocent, we are blameless, and we have pure hearts. In Him, you've given us new hearts, and we are careful to keep your statutes. Forgive us when we sin against you. In redeeming us from sin and death through the blood of your Son, you've dealt bountifully with us. We pray that you will also deal mercifully with the ungodly and bring them to repentance. We do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. We pray that they may kiss your son, lest his wrath break out against them and they perish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. <clears throat> World without end. Amen. So, this week, uh, let, let me say this, last week we started, uh, we looked at chapter 1 of Leviticus, and we went over the ascension offering that's detailed there, and this week we're going to be in chapter 2, and uh, we're going to focus uh, on what's often referred to as the grain offering, okay? And what I'm going to do is say some things about why the grain offering is probably better translated, just as a lexical matter, um, as a tribute offering, and I think also as a theological matter, it's going to be better translated as tribute offering. I'm also going to comment on uh, sort of the meaning of some of the elements involved uh, in that rite, the rite of the, the burning of the grain offerings there. So I didn't intend for this to happen, but as I started writing this talk, uh, I kept finding myself having things to say about basically just the first two verses of chapter 2. Um, which, as you know, someone presenting on something like this, you really wish wouldn't happen. It's not, it's not fun in this moment right now to stand up here and look at you all and say, hey, about 90% of this conversation will be only on the first two verses of this chapter. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, that's about uh, how it's going to go. Uh, but I, I, think it'll be, I think it'll be worth our while. The, the Spirit will make it so one way or another. Um, so I'm going to try to say some things uh, about what grain and flour might represent in the Bible. 
at least in some places. I'm going to try to say what uh, the oil, frankincense, and the salt being added to the, the flour of the grain offering, what, uh, what that might mean, and um, especially try to focus on the sequence of the sacrifices that come up around, that show up around the tribute offering or this grain offering that we're going to be talking about, okay? So I'll talk about the meaning of, of wheat, uh, of uh, flour. I'll talk about uh, uh, the works of our hands being offered to God, things like that. And then I'm going to talk about the importance, though, of the ordering of the sacrifices uh, in Leviticus. And you probably heard um, Zach mention this the other day, um, the, that uh, I guess it was yesterday maybe, but the ordering of the sacrifices uh, in Israel's worship is important, just like the ordering of our services, our liturgical services, our divine service is, Eucharistic service is, is, uh, is important. And in the coming weeks, I, I hope to have a, a lesson for you about the proper order of a service, okay? And, and actually, it's kind of cool because Zach, uh, he touched on this a little bit this weekend. Um, okay, so in his commentary on the book of Leviticus, Gordon Wenham notes that chapter 2 divides roughly into three different sections. And I have the text of chapter 2 uh, on your handout there. Um, the first section, he thinks, uh, is comprised of verses 1 through 3. It covers cereal. If you hear me say cereal, just think grain. Cereal offerings of uncooked grains. Cereal off verses 4 through 10 covers cereal offerings of cooked grains. And verses... 11 through 16 uh, provide sort of miscellaneous rules and uh, uh, just facts, I guess you might say, but especially rules about cereal offerings, things that need to be done. So let's read chapter 2 and then just focus on the first three verses. And by the way, I don't plan on, um, you know, continuing with chapter 2 next, next week, so um, we'll, we'll try to move on, but... <clears throat> so let me read this. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be un, uh, of unleavened loaves. I'm sorry, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring with the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn it on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as food offering to the Lord. As a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. 
You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn it as its memorial portion, as its memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Okay, and that concludes chapter 2. So in most of our English translations, as you see here, chapter 2 opens by referring to this offering. This, this is a korban, an offering, this drawing near thing. Remember, it's the, the, the korban. This is what korban means. It, it refers to this korban, this drawing near thing, as a grain offering. And the phrase used here is actually minka korban. And many commentators have pointed out that this particular phrase is better translated as tribute offering rather than grain offering. And this is because minka, that Hebrew word minka, uh, means something like present, gift, or tribute, coming from the root verb to a portion, maybe dole out even. So sort of lexically, etymologically, minka has uh, no obvious connections with grain. And so it seems like something like a, a, a tribute offering does a better job of capturing the meaning just of the term used. And um, let's, we're going to look at uh, this come up in a color, couple other places in the scripture. We see that uh, minkah, these tribute offerings, appear early on in the Bible. It takes place when Cain and Abel offer sacrifices to God right outside of uh, the Garden of Eden, at the Gate of Eden. Uh, we talked about this a couple last week, week before. No, week before. Um, what they offer there is the minkah. That's what it's called. Okay. Um, but in both cases, um, so both both of them offer a minkah. But what's interesting about this uh, is that. Um, and important for our purposes is that Abel's offering doesn't seem to involve any grain. At least not obviously. The text doesn't say that it does. Um, <clears throat> his was an animal offering. If you go to Genesis 32, Jacob sends a, a gift or a series of gifts, uh, minkah, to uh, Esau to try to win favor in his sight, or gain favor in his sight. And um, as I've looked at Genesis 32, there's no mention of grain in there. Um, with respect to Jacob offering Esau any grain as a part of the gift. He offers him people, I think he offers him uh, cattle and so on, but, but no grain. Um, so again, my point's just that the meaning of minkah, even theologically, it's just it's better um, understood as, uh, in term, by theologically, I mean just it's, it's broader understanding in the canon, it's just better understood as a tribute offering, the giving of a gift. Uh, for, to a superior usually. And this is what Gordon, Gordon Wenham says about this, and I have this on your handout. In non-religious usage, Mingha often means tribute. The money paid by a vassal king to his overlord is a mark of his continuing goodwill and faithfulness. There seems very little difficulty in transferring these secular, these secular meanings of Mingha into religi the religious sphere. The cereal offering is a kind of tribute from the faithful worshiper to his divine overlord. When a treaty was made, the contested nations were expected to bring their tribute to the great king. Israel, too, was bound by a covenant with God and therefore had a responsibility to express her fidelity by bringing her cereal offerings, end quote. So from this point forward, I will mostly refer to um, this as a tribute rather than a grain offering. Is the flour and the oil mixed? 
Yes, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But yes, the flour, the, the oil um, would seep into it, as far as I understand it. Um, there's no, uh, there's no indication that they, in the text itself, that they needed it or you know anything like that. Um, but the the frankincense portion, and again, I'll come back to this. But that's not mixed in. That uh, apparently frankincense resin is edible. I didn't know this. I just recently learned this. Um, but they would they would lay frankincense on top of it, sprinkle it on there, and then it would be removed when the priest would burn it. They would burn the frankincense. They would take a portion of all this and and burn it with the frankincense. Um, so uh, one thing I want to highlight about this particular tribute offering here in verses one through two, this this uh, uh, uncooked grain offering. Um, is that, uh, and really actually uh, all of the offerings, all of the grain offerings in chapter 2, is that they involve a process of modifying nature, okay? And notice that um, this one consists of fine flour, okay? They're not just taking the grain from the field and throwing it on the altar or something. They're modifying it. It's, they're turning it into fine flour. How's that done? Usually by doing lots of crushing and sifting, okay? They're working with their hands to modify nature, um, and moreover, they're adding uh, to that fine flour that they make oil, frankincense, and salt. Verse 13 is where we saw that salt was added. And I don't think this is just nature being modified and moved around in sort of arbitrary ways. I think that the modification of, that the grain undergoes, it's not, it's not what we would call value neutral. Okay? Instead, I think we should probably see in this offering human beings living in the creation blessing that was given to them in the garden. There was a blessing given to them in the garden as a gift. And it's the blessing of subduing the earth by improving upon it. Subduing the earth by glorifying it. They make it better than it was before God turned them loose to work on it, before he turned us loose to work on it. That's what we do. So this is why it's not value neutral. Um, <clears throat> What we might be seeing in this offering is God's people receiving the natural order, including their natural inclinations to work the ground and produce things from it. So receiving all of that natural order, I'm, and I'm trying to, I want to emphasize this, I want to make sure I don't skip over it. We are a part of the natural order, right? I can't stress that enough. We are, are as uh, uh, organic as you can get. We literally come from the dirt. We're dirt people. I've said that before in many of my talks. I want you to think about yourself like that. This gets, you know, you, you can't really properly understand our Ash Wednesday service if you don't understand that. We come from the dirt. <clears throat> uh, man, there's a lot to say about that. I love, I, there's so much to say about that um, in relation to baptism. And we'll talk a little, we might touch, touch on that, but... Um, but we're, I think what's going on here is we're seeing um, humans receiving nature as a gift and then um, returning uh, that gift to God in proper response for his goodness towards us. Okay? And given that this modification of natural order uh, and its return to Yahweh and thanksgiving takes place in the tabernacle, what's the tabernacle? It's the Garden of Eden again. It's God's holy mountain, Right? Well, given that this return to God of the natural order takes place in Eden, it's safe to say that, this lends credibility to the idea that the work that we do each day, the work that God's given each of us to do as being sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, 
This, this lends credibility to the idea that the work Adam was to do in the normal course of his life in and out of the garden, well, that, all of that work is an act of worship. Everything you do is an act of worship. Brushing your teeth, that serves your neighbor um, and you. But uh, um, going to work each day, um, uh, flipping through charts, whatever it is, you know, writing on the board, teaching children Latin, all of that is worship. We don't tend to see life that way, but I think in part that's what this offering is teaching us. The works of our hands are acts of worship. We offer them, uh, the Israelites offered them in the garden sanctuary that was the tabernacle, and we offer them in the garden sanctuary of uh, the, the earth in general and within the context of the church, the new temple of God. When we work, we glorify the world that God's gifted us, and we return it to Him in the form of praise and thanksgiving. We make tribute to Him because of His mercy. Now, this is vital to keep in mind that when we, when we talk about offering the works of our hands in praise and thanksgiving, we, we offer the works of our hands only because Jesus has shed His blood for us so that we can enter into God's presence. That's to say, we offer the works of our hands to God based solely on the merit of Jesus. Who's our blameless substitute? Our blameless substitute who carries us into God's presence. Okay, on His merits, not ours. And I think we can see this reality of offering the works of our hands solely on the merits of Jesus, who's carried us into God's presence, when we understand the ordering of these sacrifices, in particular the ordering of the ascension offering and the tribute offering. Okay, And this is why I was saying, and I think probably why, why someone like Zach uh, and lots of other people, um, Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and a bunch of other people are going to say, the order of the sacrifices is vital, Okay, even for us to understand the gospel. So let's, let's look at this ordering, okay? In the normal case, the tribute offering wasn't offered by itself. I'm not going to say it never was, but there's, there are a number of passages that indicate that it was offered um, not by itself. We'll talk about that. It was often offered in conjunction with the ascension offering and one or more purification offerings, sin offerings. And we'll discuss those in the coming weeks. But, for example, in Numbers 28, 1 through 8, we read that a grain offering, a tribute offering of fine flour mixed with oil was offered daily on the altar following the daily ascension offerings that took place in the morning and evening. Now, this is wonderful. Look at these two quotes on your next page from Michael Morales. An even weightier role for the ascension offering is established later in Exodus 29, 38 through 46, where God legislates the daily divine service for the tabernacle, the ascension offerings. Every day in the morning and at twilight, so in the evening, Aaron's priesthood was to offer up a yearling lamb to on the Sabbath as an ascension offering. These morning and evening sacrifices book ending and therefore subsuming all of the day's other sacrifices along with Israel within the ascending smoke of their soothing aroma. Thereby, the daily life of Israel was lived out within the context of the flames of the ascension offering. Whether plowing a field or weaving a basket, all of Israelite life was offered up to God by the priesthood on behalf of Israel through the soothing aroma that morning and evening ascended continually to God from the altar. 
And elsewhere he writes, and this is the second quote on your page, this vicarious entrance into God's presence through the ascending smoke of a pleasing aroma explains the logic of the tribute offering, which always accompanied the ascension offering. This is the idea here. Uh, that's the end of the quote. And the idea here is that we can offer our whole life to God, even the works of our hands. I mean, Paul talks about this. Because we have been brought near to him through the blood of our blameless substitute, Jesus, who makes a way for us to enter into Yahweh's presence. That's why the order is important. The, ascent, the purification offerings, they deal with sin. The ascension offering carries the sinless person through the substitute into God's presence. But guess what? Sinless people saved by God don't show up empty-handed. They show up as people who are blessed. Who have, been, who have received life and all things. And they give back to God when they're in his presence, just out of joy, out of tribute for his mercy to them. I think that's probably what's being depicted here in this, this offering. Does this make sense? I'm not asking if you agree. I just want to make sure the sort of the logic and the, the picture, the schema is making sense. Okay. <clears throat> so how close to the Father are all of we right now, all of us? Uh, well, through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, for us, right? He's, God is for us. We've been brought so close to the Father, how can we pray? How can we address Him? I just said it. Our Father, who art in heaven. That's how close we are. I think... I think it's right to say that we're hidden in the bosom of the Father, just like Jesus is said to uh, be in the bosom of the Father in John 1.18. Uh, there, you get this idea that, well, no, one, no one's seen God face to face, just Jesus, right? He's in the bosom of the Father, but we can see God face to face, and it won't kill us. That's how close we are. All of us, even the things we do, even the work God gave us to do, I mean, that's not, that's not separate from us. That's a part of who we are. We're made to work and to serve our neighbors. So the next thing I want to comment on is the addition of oil and frankincense to the, fi uh, to the fine flour that was brought to the altar. Why were Israelite worshipers required to pour oil on the flour and place frankincense on top of it? So they sort of sprinkled it on there. Now, before I try to answer some of these questions, these two questions, I've got to uh, try to say something about what wheat and flour represents in the Bible, at least in some places in the Bible. Um, and I'm going to admit, like I did last week, I, I'm not 100% that what I'm about to tell you is correct, okay? I, I, but I think they, these are uh, learned things that we can say about this that might, that might be right, and it's just something for you to consider, okay, reflect on. Um, and I say I don't know because the text is just isn't totally clear about uh, all of these things, all of their meanings. So, um, okay. <clears throat> uh, wheat and grain often represent people in the Bible. Okay, that's the stuff out of which flour was made in the ancient world, wheat, right? I don't know if there was almond flour like there is uh, these days for us gluten-free people. Uh, but uh, now you may have already known this from reading the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. There, wheat and weeds represent human beings. 
And I think we see uh, this symbolism early on in the Bible. Go back to Genesis chapter 37. Joseph dreams of him and his family as a group of sheaves, bundles of wheat, where all of the other sheaves who represent his family members bow down to his sheaf, which is him. His dream was prophetic because his family did indeed bow down to him after he was made second in command in Egypt. So again, wheat sometimes represents people in the Bible. <clears throat> so let's go back to our questions, keeping that in mind. Why were the Israelite worshipers required to pour oil on the tribute, uh, on the flower of the tribute offering, uh, and then add frankincense on top of that? So it's possible, I think, based on what I just said, to see the flower as representing both God's gifts to us and also us. So the works of our hands and also us. The worshiper him or herself. The gift of life that's given to us. In which case, the addition of oil and frankincense might represent a glorification of the worshiper through God's blessings. God glorifies us. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we, uh, we see that uh, oil is associated with people being glorified as kings. Saul's an anointed king, but he's anointed with oil. David's anointed king, 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed with oil. It's also associated with the spirit rushing upon David in 1 Samuel 16 when he's anointed. So I think one of the things that oil might represent uh, as being poured, you know, uh, in being poured on this, this flower is the, the glorification of us, of the offerer, the worshiper. That's a blessing. That's a good thing. God makes kings out of his people. He makes, uh, he makes uh, spirit-filled pieces of dirt, you know, uh, that have life like Adam did. I think the other thing uh, we should note about oil is that that oil, in, especially in its Old Testament context, um, it consecrates people. It sets people apart for service to Yahweh, for service to God. And it also sets apart inanimate objects for service to God. If you go to Exodus 40, we read that uh, when God commanded Moses to, uh, to uh, uh, erect the tabernacle or after it was erected, uh, he anoints everything with oil, all of the utensils, all of the pieces of furniture in it, the altar and so on. But he also anoints Aaron and his sons and all their garments. And he's doing this, and the text tells us why, because they need to become holy. They're going to be in God's house, okay? They need to become holy. This is where the grain ultimately ends up. It ends up in the very presence of God, and we know this because it's a pleasing aroma. Okay, it's got to be holy. So I think the oil's got to have something to do with setting this grain that must represent something. It seems like the, the works of our hands and maybe, maybe human beings, given the typology in Scripture about wheat, Right? It's setting human beings apart as holy so that we uh, can live in service to Yahweh. But isn't it interesting? I, I thought this was interesting as I, as I reflected on this. Like, uh, God, um, in making us his servants, how does he do that? He does it by glorifying us, by making us kings. You go read the Psalms, and, and you'll find that uh, he's, he's going to bring the nations under our feet, the feet of the church that is the body of Christ. We're so quick to say, oh, that's just Jesus. He's going to do that. Just Jesus is, yeah, but we're the body of Christ. We've got to get that. We've got to get that in us. We're going to rule the world. Along with our older brother, Jesus. So, um, 
This is what Jeff Myers has to say about this. He says, we are drawn into God's presence to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which means that by the Spirit, we present our entire being to Christ, uh, in Christ to the Father, including the work that we have accomplished at home and in the marketplace during the week. We're set apart. I think we're set apart in baptism. You go read all these passages in Scripture about baptism. Um, this, this is where, in a very special way, we come into contact with the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm not going to say that the Spirit doesn't work apart from the waters of baptism. I think there's evidence in Scripture. Um, but in, in the normal case, this is how it happens. Um, in, the, in, a, in a truly Christian world that, that God is bringing about, all of the little children will be baptized uh, from all of the nations. Okay? The Spirit of God will, will come upon them in their infancy. And... Um, all of life is going to be lived out by people set apart through the Spirit to service to God and neighbor, in service to God and neighbor. So I think that um, in part that's what this oil being poured on the flower is representing. Um, is this making sense? Are we still tracking? Okay. So for the sake of time, um, I've got a few minutes. I'm going to briefly comment on what I think the, the symbolic import is of frankincense and the, uh, this particular manifestation of the tribute offering by particular manifestation, I mean uh, the uh, manifestation of the uncooked grains here. And the basic idea is that the, the frankincense symbolizes the pleasing aroma of a life purified through, the, uh, through a bloody sacrifice. And you've got to think about it, in this system, this comes after the bloody sacrifice of the ascension offering and probably the bloody sacrifice of the purification offering, which I'll talk about in future weeks. Why? I think there's that ordering. But um, that, uh, th that the frankincense symbolizes that pleasing aroma of a purified life that comes through a bloody sacrifice that's set apart to service, uh, for service to Yahweh. And in this rite, it's the pleasing aroma of the frankincense that seems to trigger Yahweh's memory such that he remembers with favor the worshiper. Um, and we're going to see in just a moment, there's an addition of salt, um, and he's going to remember something else. And so this brings me to talk about the last half of verse 2, the memorial portion that's mentioned in this text. After the worshiper poured oil on the fine flour, he placed frankincense on it and added salt to it, verse 13. The priest would then take a handful of the flour along with all of the frankincense. So this is getting back to your question. They would take a handful of flour, not all of it. They would take a handful of that flour that had oil on it, and then they would take all, gather up all of the frankincense, and then that would go on the altar. And this is called the memorial portion. This is the portion that's burned, okay? Um, and it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's what verse 2 says. And so regarding the function, what the memorial portion is doing, this is what Jay Sklar, an Old Testament scholar, says. He says, and this is on your, uh, your handout as well. The memorial portion was not only to serve as a token of the offering itself, but also, as its name implies, to bring the offerer to the Lord's remembrance. This language does not imply that the Lord had forgotten the offerer. Rather, Israelites used such language to describe the Lord's favor and care towards his people. This could be in a very broad sense, as when the psalmist asks, What is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? It can also be used to describe the Lord delivering a person from a specific trial, such as sickness, oppression from enemies, or the inability uh, to have children. So in short, to be remembered before the Lord was to experience his favor. Um, let's go to verse 13. 
Another important aspect of the memorial portion of the tribute offering was to remind God not only of the worshiper, but also of the covenant relationship that he had with him. According to verse 13, salt was to be added to the tribute offering because it symbolized Yahweh's covenant with his people. Quote, you shall, uh, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Um, let me see the time. Let's, I want to... Um, salt is to bring to God's remembrance the covenant. Um, he's said, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and the salt is a reminder to God. In fact, most of the time we talk about remembering things, uh, God remembering things in the Bible, or God saying, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, it's actually, do this as my memorial. Okay? And most of the time, these references are references to God uh, remembering things. And I think this is what's going on um, in uh, 1 Corinthians when Paul talks about um, uh, discerning uh, you know, the body of Christ. Uh, th this is, uh, when Christ says, excuse me, do this in remembrance of me. I think a better way to think about that is do this as my memorial. Um, we'll talk about that some other time. But um, let's go to verse 3, uh, where we read that the priests were able to take uh, the rest of the tribute offering. They were able to eat it themselves. I don't know if you all caught that when we read it. But in verse 3, we see that the priests could actually eat part of this. And I think one of the lessons from this is that um, our God is a God who shares his good and holy gifts with his people. He feeds them of his own food at his table. Just think of Psalm 23, right? Think, and, and, and don't think that's for someone else. That's for you, right? I mean, are we priests? Are we? Yeah, we're priests, okay? We get to eat from God's table, uh, and this is what... Uh, this is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of and works in us every week. We're, feed, we're feasting with God, okay? This was present even in the Old Testament. Um, okay. The last thing is that, um, I don't have time to discuss the last thing because it's 1145, but leaven. Um, there can't be any leaven in it, uh, in, in any of these grain offerings. So I might mention, I might open briefly next week with saying something about why they can't have leaven uh, in their grain offerings and, uh, and then jump into uh, chapter 3. So, okay, uh, next week, or not next week, excuse me, the following week because we have the annual meeting next week. Thanks so much, you all.